with Cryptic Cove. Sadly, JP and Kinsey still can't join us for this episode, as they are currently trapped in the ghost dimension. Uh, while we work on a way of getting them out, I decided it's best to bring on some special guests who seem equally passionate about cryptids, aliens, and generally anything spooky. The Mountain Lore Research Society. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? I'm Michael. I'm Annie. And I'm Josh. Oh, you want more? <laughs> yeah, that Hi. would be helpful. <laughs> we, uh... We're the Mountain Lore Research Society. Um, we look into all things lore related, mainly within Appalachian, you know, mountains. I completely forgot the whole entire story. I was terrified you're going to be like, we look into lore. <laughs> mountains <laughs> and research. I was gonna kidney punch you. <laughs> our our little type of thing is finding seeking the truth behind the stories. Uh, we do paranormal investigations, uh, cryptid research. Like one of the big, our big first things is going to go to the Mothman, uh, do a Mothman hunt after the Mothman festival because you know people are able to get near it. Next weekend. We're going, we're doing our first, like, overnight type of investigation. In the woods. In the woods. In the woods. And we also have secondary guests. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Katie Perron. I own Appalachian Oddities in West and West Virginia. And we are an eclectic collection of everything odd. So, I figured you guys are typically into... The ethereal, things like ghosts, spooks, and specters. And I took that into account when picking this week's, well, not cryptid, but kinda. For now, let's just say I'm presenting this week's paranormal case. The date was July 18th, 1991. The place was the appellate division of the New York Supreme Court. Two clients. One Jeffrey M. Strabowski and the other Helen V. Ackley eyed each other from their respective desks. A hush shuttled over them as the bailiff announced the arrival of the Justice One, Israel Rubin. The court waited in nervous, silent anticipation for him to announce the decision. Rubin read out the majority opinion, concluding with, quote, having reported presence in both a national publication and the local press, defendant is stopped to deny their existence. And as a matter of law, the house is haunted, end quote. Right here, we have the Supreme Court of New York State saying they legally recognize the existence of ghosts. But what could have led to this? What paranormal activity could have warranted the attention of the highest court in New York? To find out, we'll have to turn back to the 1960s and unravel the mystery of the Akeley House Haunting. Have any of you heard of this case before? No, I have not. I have not. I have. You I have? I haven't read that much into it, but yeah, it's been a long time. Okay, and you haven't either, Katie? Yeah, I, I'm unfamiliar with this case. I'm excited to hear about it. All right. Our story takes us to 1967. It was a bright July day. The sun was merciless, but the breeze off the Hudson River kept the air cool enough to be bearable. Helen had just arrived to her new house, a gorgeous Queen Anne Victorian home in Nyack, New York. For those who don't know, a Queen Anne Victorian house is one built of asymmetrical features with towers and wraparound porches. It was built in 1890 and with over 4,600 square feet, contained five bedrooms, five bathrooms, 
a sunroom, and a saltwater pool with an amazing view of the river. She instantly fell for the place and was eager to move in. Good luck finding that in this market. <laughs> I was like, I'm reading the description and I'm like, um, where can I find this? I live in a box. <laughs> I live in a literal box. <laughs> I love that purple Victorian Parker Park. Now, her husband moved in earlier. He had already secured a job in New York by that time. Helen, however, made multiple trips bringing stuff over from their farm in Maryland. Yet, even as she was moving into her dream home, weird things were beginning to unsettle her. The first incident was when she was out on the street, when a bunch of kids ran over to her. Do you live in that house? Do you have kids? They asked. She told them that she did buy the house, but her children would not move in until next week. Helen also offered to let the kids look around her house. Creepy, but okay. But two of them seemed afraid. Their friends explained their hesitation by saying, quote, They think there's ghosts in there. They're scared. Did you know you bought a haunted house? End quote. So, typical, if this is a horror movie, this is the first act. This is the first sign that right. shit, shit right. ain't being right. How, how do you react to this? Because it's not enough to be like, burn the house. But that has to unsettle you, right? What, put yourself in their shoes. What are y'all doing? There were price they paid for the house. I assume. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, like, I know it's good in the sixties. I don't think they're really giving them for free. Well, right, but like, if the price is lower, not with five bathrooms, that. man. You, you would be like haunted. Wow, a bonus feature. I would. <laughs> I, I think what Josh is getting at is like in the case like that they uh, took the information from the haunting in Connecticut. Like she got that house for really, really cheap because there exactly. had been. Paranormal disturbances. Ah, yeah. Okay, okay. I just like, I'm kind of like, with the way I am now, I'm like, ooh, you know, this makes me want to move in even more. But at the same time, it's like, okay, I don't want to first, like, what are the stories, you know? Is it like, you know, creepy person in a window, or is it like, you know, screams and torture coming from, you know, the basement? Is it residual or a poltergeist? (laughs) I might. I would be completely jazzed about the cold spots. Imagine how much you'd save on AC. <laughs> right, right. Like, I'm gonna go stand over here with Dave for a little bit. It's gonna make it a nice day for me. <laughs> the second incident was when a plumber she hired to fix up the piping asked how long she planned to stay in the house alone before her husband arrived. Also creepy, but hey, apparently serial killers weren't invented yet. <laughs> he told her that he kept hearing footsteps going up the stairs to the second floor. The man explained that he had chased after the footsteps several times, but always found the upstairs empty. He was convinced someone, or something, was in the house, and didn't want to leave her alone until George arrived around 4.30, though she assured him nothing was wrong. There would be one last creepy occurrence that night. The following is an excerpt from a Reader's Digest article written by Helen herself. Quote, That night I told George about the two conversations as we got ready for bed. He nods his head gravely and pulled up the covers. Sliding in beside him, I realized the hall light was burning. With a groan, I started up. Where are you going? George demanded. To turn the light off, of course. Leave it on. I looked at him. Since when have you slept with a light on? Since the first night I moved in here, and I do not want to discuss it. Good night. He turned over, his back to me. As I dropped off to sleep, I wondered what it what it was with these crazy men in this lovely old house. I got nothing but good vibes. So we live with the footsteps and I found it reassuring to have it have such a vigilant patrolman on duty 24 hours a day. Anyway, all, all old houses creak, end quotes.
So, uh, yeah, that's three things in one day. And I think that's when I'll start getting a bit antsy. I, it's it's kind of like a nice reverse gender swap of, like, the typical haunting house movie. Right. Where, like, it's usually the gaslighting dad who's like, no, nah, it's nothing. It's fine. Ain't no ghost. <laughs> Why his kid is, like, climbing up the walls. <laughs> and now it's, for once, it's the mom who's like, yeah, it's spooky, but five bathrooms. <laughs> I feel like I'm on her side in this, honestly. I, I, I could not see letting go of my love for, you know, you move into your dream home. And, and I just recently experienced this. We purchased our house last year and our house was built in 1915. So, of course, we do experience the things that older homes you know, kind of come with. So you do get the creaking noises. You do get the house settling and shifting and it creates for some pretty unsettling, just audible noise in your home. And um, from where I had I had spent time as an investigator, you know, I knew to, to go out and kind of look to debunk these noises to see what they were, a open window, a creaky step, you know, whatever. But um Honestly, from the from the standpoint of the wife in the home, I don't think I'd be letting go of a of a Victorian beauty like that either. So, I like the the what you said about the vigilant patrolman twenty four hours a day. Like that's just an awesome take about the footsteps. Yeah. Even though I figured, like listening to footsteps throughout the day and stuff like that would get so annoying to me. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> can I just cry down, please? You know, I'm trying to sleep. I picked the wrong group. For this episode, because you all hear about haunted house, and you're like, that's the selling point. <laughs> I told you, Josh would think it was a bonus feature. It is. See, the way you are, though, the way she is, if she hears a sound, she's going to explain it away. She's not going to see oh, what yeah, it is, no. but she's going to try and explain, oh, that, that was this or that was that. I'm like, it was a ghost. <laughs> Just automatically. No, no, I will debunk it, it as literally anything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, okay, maybe it's because I'm a bit weird, but my first fear would be that's not a ghost, but it's like a, a squatter <laughs> high in the walls. Oh, right. Oh, gosh. What? There's a movie about that, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> she would soon come to realize, however, that it was more than just creeps. Over the next few years, her family experienced bizarre poltergeist activity. For example, Helen remarked that she once witnessed a cord dangling over their dinner table come to a sudden abrupt stop mid-swing, as if grabbed by an invisible hand. She states this occurred on a windless day with no breeze to push the cord. The most common phenomenon was doors slamming on their own, particularly a set of casements that George eventually had to nail shut to stop the constant noise. The incident that made her a believer was when she found herself alone one evening. George's job required him to travel a lot, so it was not unusual for Helen to sleep by herself, often staying up much later than she normally would. This particular night, she was out looking She was looking out a window towards the Hudson River. Suddenly, she felt a chill on her left and instantly knew there was something next to her. Her hair still on end, the classic style that when one senses a frightening presence. She knew on instinctive, primal level that something was there with her. Yet, Helen managed to maintain her composure. Swallowing the fear, she calmly said, it's beautiful on the river, isn't it? She immediately felt relieved and the tension dissipated. It was a few moments before she felt confident enough to walk away from the window. As she made her way to the door, the presence seemed to follow her. Both came to a stop just on the doorway. Quote, 
Thank you for sharing the view with me, she said. Perhaps trying to mediate with the spirits. I'm going to bed now. Good night. End quote. Immediately, Helen retrieved her bedroom, physically shaken by the encounter. Any thoughts y'all want to add? I mean, I that that is 100% how I always conducted my investigations. Like, she doesn't know who was in that house before her. So if somebody passed away and that's where they're residing because they believe that was their home in life, they believe it's their home in death, you want to treat them like they're at home. You want to be respectful you want to be you know courteous and and for her to for her to reach out in that manner before much about paranormal investigations had been conducted at that point i i i find that really endearing like i i really appreciate that she made the effort to reach out in a friendly manner and not scream and run away like what you you said kitty but also see the other side is like she's terrified and it's like you get kidnapped, you want to try to relate to your kidnapper, you know, like you're so terrified. It's like, oh, you know, hey, thanks, you know, let's be friends so you don't kill me type thing. She's got some ghost like Stockholm syndrome going on. <laughs> like, oh <my> God. <laughs> I really, I like this house enough that I'm going to stay here with you. Spookholm syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> She's not giving up this house. <laughs> this story gets more relatable. Every generation, <laughs> the the Gen Z experience of house hunting. Mm-hmm. I I understand why all those horror movie dads don't want to leave the house now. We're in the middle of house hunting. My condolences. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Uh, we just look at house prices and then put their phones down. <laughs> On many different occasions, Helen would wake up to find that her 15 year old daughter Cynthia was already up before her. Naturally, it was a bit odd that her teenage daughter seemed to never sleep in, but it took a turn for the creepy when Cynthia finally offered up an explanation. Quote, It's spooky, mother. Every morning, at exactly the same time, my bed starts to shake. If I don't get up right away, the bed shakes even harder. End quote. Now, this might be a bit of a tangent, but how are we feeling about this? I guess it would be the ghost trying to do something nice and make sure you're not late, but I like to get a few extra hours of sleep when I can. And if this ghost is ruining my sleep schedule, I'm not having it. Next day, there will be an exorcist ready to banish that fucker to the shadow realm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that, that's pretty intrusive. But, you know, also, again, going back to what is the spirit that's inhabiting the house? Is it the previous owner? Did they have some kind of land? Was there some kind of routine where everybody in the house was up at a certain time, you know, to help to help work on the house? So the people that are there need to be up and working on the house so she the spirit is doing what they know to do it's like one of the one of the either first or second odd encounter i was telling the story about my nephew at the apartment you know every morning at the same time he would be woken up screaming frightened and then we found out the story about the person who had passed away there there's a lot more of the story but yeah anyway um and she had kids and it was about the same time that you would get a child out for school and we actually looked at the time for the bus schedules and stuff like that and it's like okay you know get your kids up about 45 to 30 minutes before it's time to catch the bus, and that just it seemed to all track. I was so be annoyed as hell, though. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. I was annoyed when that you wake me up. I, I mean, maybe that for maybe it was even just like parents waking their kids up, like it's time to get up out of bed. Anyway, Cynthia stated that Christmas break was coming up. Uh, some sources say spring break, I figure it's not that big of a detail, and that she wanted to sleep in late. As crazy as it sounded, Helen suggested simply explain to the ghost that school was off and she did not have to get up so early. Cynthia did show and found that the poltergeist appeared to leave her in peace. 
At this point, the family recognized that the house had a spirit. But instead of getting a priest to cleanse the house or something like that, they decide on a rather unusual tactic for expunging their incorporeal guests. Renovations. I'll admit, I don't really follow the logic here. Uh, typically, making big changes to the house tends to rile the spirits up, not placate them. Or at least, that's how it works in every ghost show and movie I've seen. But I figure it's the 60s, so the cliches of the genre are still a bit fresh and not well known yet. Uh, any expertise y'all want to add into that? Like, just from like the story to this point, without knowing anything about the story previously, it sounds like a, it's a female ghost. It's a mother. It just To me, that's what it seems like. Um, on the side of renovations and such, uh, the place where I was an investigator, they had renovations on a regular basis. And I can uh, confirm that the places that received renovations were actually less active during the following season. Really? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so if a wall was torn down or if a room was taken out or something in a room was changed in where we would have good activity, it would absolutely completely like come to a dead halt. Excuse the pun. <laughs> oh my god. I David realized. Well, here's gonna seem to happen at the inverse effect, but it's gonna seem to bring the two groups to almost a breaking point. So we're gonna see how that relationship plays out. Anything else y'all wanna add? No. Alright. The first target of their renovation was the living room. Designed to paint over the battleship gray with something livelier, pun intended. Um, <laughs> Helen was doing this from atop an eight-foot ladder when she felt eyes watching her despite being home alone. She tried to ignore it, but it could but could feel its presence lingering, observing her. Figuring it worked twice before, she tried to talk to the spirit, saying, quote, I hope you like the color. Hope you're pleased with what we're doing to the house. It certainly must have been lovely when it was first built, end quote. Helen finally looked over her shoulder in the presence direction and saw something that truly shocked her. The spirit finally manifested in its full body. The spirit, resembling a colonial-styled older gentleman, smiled at her while floating mid-air. Perhaps pleased with making contact, the spirit slowly began to fade away before disappearing altogether. The following description of the ghost is straight from Helen's article in Reader's Digest. Quote, What did he look like? He was the most cheerful and solid-looking little person I've seen. A cap of white hair framed his round, apple-cheeked face, and there were piercing blue eyes under thick white eyebrows. His light blue suit was immaculate. The cuffs of the short, unbuttoned jacket turned back over ruffles at his wrists. A white ruffled stock showed his throat. Below breeches cut to his kneecaps, he wore white hose and shiny black pumps with buckles, in quotes. This description greatly interested Cynthia as she had seen the figure's outline in her room on several occasions, yet it did not resemble what Helen saw. Instead, Cynthia stated that the figure was of medium height and appeared to be a woman. Thus, we can establish that the house appeared to have at least two separate entities haunting it. Now, plenty of guests over the years have witnessed strange activity within the Akeley house. It was in 1974, however, that one of the full-bodied apparitions first appeared to someone outside the immediate family. The recipients of that particular honor were Helen's brother Alfred and his wife Ingrid. They had visited and spent a few days at the house. Yet, on the morning of their second day there, Ingrid looked visibly upset. They asked what happened and she answered that she was woken up in the middle of the night due to the feeling someone's presence within the room. She looked over and saw a silhouette in the French doors that looked like the outline of a man. 
She noted he appeared to be wearing a long coat in the style of the uh, Revolutionary Era and had a powdered wig on. Spirit then moved to the bed and sat down facing away from her. What makes this even stranger is that the ghost opened a large book that floated in the air. To add to the fantastical effect, the book's pages emitted a faint light. The man simply turned through the pages and, seemingly finding what he wanted, closed the book. He then stood up and disappeared. Now, a bit to unpack here. Namely, some argue that this is yet another spirit, making for a third in this house. Some sources claim he was a sailor, but I haven't seen much beyond that. But what really grabs my interest is the book. Now, I guess ghosts can have books floating, but this feels different. Frankly, floating books that radiate light doesn't make me think of a ghost. It kind of makes me think of a wizard. Kind of like the library scenes in Doctor Strange where he's surrounded by all the floating tomes. So could it be possible this guy was like an occultist or, hell, even a mage during his life? Maybe he was the one responsible for the Akeley House having such a potent paranormal presence? Speculation, I know, but half the fun of this podcast is me just throwing out bullshit theories. Thoughts? Well, I feel like that's a possibility. When I mean, one was it was a Victorian style house, and yeah. in the Victorian era, like occult stuff was really big, like seances and all that stuff. So, what's to say that that couldn't be somebody haunting there? Or yeah, you know, it's it kind of puts me in the mind of um, how how dog breeds have been watered down over mm-hmm. the years. So, like they've been mixed with different. Um, different breeds of dogs, so you come to this whole other thing, like the uh, the bull terrier doesn't look anything now like what it did a hundred years ago. So it would be the same thing for for magic, and the same thing for it, things across the veil that we don't understand. You know, over hundreds of years, that stuff has been rewritten, watered down, um, mixed with other influences, mm-hmm. and it's completely changed. So what we know today is not what they would have known 500 years ago. So who's to say that it's not some form of a cultist that had gotten a hold of some old magic and kind of gotten himself into this? Yeah, I mean, uh, he sounds like he's from the revolutionary era, which I guess makes him older than the house, but whatever at this point. The powdered wig implies a position of power. And a lot of you don't know this. A lot of the British aristocracy had a fascination of magic like uh, queen elizabeth had a court wizard john d so like they're into that stuff i didn't even know that yeah john d he uh was like this court magician who would like give her recommendations and she paid for him to live at the palace bought him a private home around a lake and he was just known for like being into like weird magic shit and came out with the uh language of Enoch that he claimed was taught to him by angels. Wow. Yep. I uh, I used to carry the book, The Language of Enoch, and at one point I did have the complete works of John D. here in the shop. So, very, very interesting person to look into. <laughs> not that magical of a name, though. John D. does not strike fear. <laughs> no, it kind of sounds like a porn star. John D. <laughs> I was thinking radio host. John D's nuts. (laughs) I'm sorry, listeners. Hey, Harmon said it was an adult podcast. I was only doing what I was told. (laughs) 
Another close relative to encounter the Spears personally was Mark Havanoff, Cynthia's husband. His first run in the ghost was on Christmas Eve. While the rest of the family is out, he was assembling gifts when he heard the sound of muffled voices talking from the dining room. He went to check and found the room empty, yet the voices continued. Eventually, the poor man became so unnerved that he turned on every single light in the house, hoping that the illumination might drive the specter away. The abundance of light did not stop him from nearly jumping out of his skin at the sudden sound of banging at the door. However, it was actually just Cynthia's brother returning home. His second encounter occurred when he was in bed with Cynthia one night. She was already fast asleep while he was on the verge of slumber, but the near drop into rest was cut short by the creaking of floorboards. He saw the bed decompress as if some pressure was leaning against it, then the same presence pressed against his chest. He turned his head to see, quote, a womanly figure in a soft dress for the moonlight of the bay windows. I felt she was looking straight at me. After about a minute, the presence got up and walked back out of the room, end quote. Kavanov concluded that the ghosts were simply sizing him up, making sure he deserved to be with Cynthia. Was she trying to seduce him? Is that what the ghost is? Was that the test? <laughs> There's that lady that thinks she got pregnant by a ghost. What the fuck? That was, that was like two years ago that that was news. A lady said she was in a relationship with the ghost, and then her and the ghost got married. And they had a ghost baby. They had a ghost baby. <laughs> Mormon's face right now is the best. <laughs> I think Harmon's writing out another episode as we speak. Oh, it was like the strangest thing I've ever seen on TLC. <laughs> of course, it's TLC. I don't know if that story's on TLC, but you got that. I'm in love with balloons, or I'm in love with a freaking airplane. The chandelier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My car. <laughs> the ghost. It's just it goes along with it. <laughs> I think the assumption that the ghosts were sizing him up to make sure that he was right for Cynthia. I like that take on it because it's almost like the spirits have accepted them as their family. So they're being protective over their family. Yeah. The weird thing with this haunting is that it seems completely friendly. Like, uh, Normally, the ghosts would try to like, get them out, but it seemed like the moment they decide to reach out to the spirits and form connection with them, that they're almost like just members of the family now. And you're going to see that more and more as the story goes on. Like, they celebrate the birth of their kids with the ghosts. And, like, it was just, it's, like, weirdly heartwarming, but also, like, weird. It, I mean, yes, it's definitely weird, but it, isn't that the basis of everything is that everybody wants to be accepted? So why shouldn't spirits be included? In that? True, true. That's a good point. It's a very wholesome episode of Cryptic Code. Don't get used to this audience. <laughs> <laughs> We're normally pieces of shit, so don't get used to this. <laughs> Other phenomena around the house include George claiming that a ham sandwich he made disappeared from the fridge. <laughs> I'll admit that might be nothing. Uh, I would steal sandwiches, too, if I had a ghost I could easily blame it on. Right. It's true. Like, where's the ghost? I don't know, I don't know where all the alcohol went. I don't ghost. know where all your Halloween candy went, kids. It was a ghost. <laughs> what, what do you think the ghost did with the sandwich? <laughs> do you think they ate it? How would they eat it? Like do you think it's like water where they fly through it? Like, to taste it? Like, we can sort of taste it if we fly through a terrible food. They hid it in the attic. 
I don't know why I just pictured the ghost as the ghost from Pac-Man. Speaking of drawers, he claimed to have seen a moccasin-clad foot in the hallway once, but disappeared before you get a look at the whole figure. Ham sandwich aside, perhaps more compelling than the ghosts, uh, than what the ghosts were taking was what they were leaving behind. At several points, the ghosts would leave very expensive trinkets for the Ackley family, uh, like gifts to mark special occasions. Notably, Cynthia found silver tongs shortly before her wedding, and later a gold baby ring just after she had given birth. In a wholesome twist of your typical haunting, the Ackley seemed to embrace the spirits as welcomed additions to the family. Helen herself was never shy about discussing the activity and wrote about it in both a Reader's Digest article in 1977 and several times in the local press. She even managed to get her house on a walking ghost tour of the village. So for many years, Helen's haunted house was the talk of Nyack. That was until 1989, when a chain of events kicked off that would bring the Ackley haunting to the national stage. Can we just talk about, like, they have, they totally have, like, ghost furs that are random gifts. <laughs> <laughs> what does a baby need with a ring? I wonder if they were family heirlooms, though. From oh, that would, that's a cool way to think about it. Yeah, yeah because uh, the, the baby ring thing, it was a common gift for infants at that time. What does a baby need with a ring? <laughs> that just seems like a choking hazard. True. The baby didn't wear the ring. It went into a keepsake box. So, like, a keepsake box with, like, their first curl and their first tooth and... Like, it was all for them to have when they were older. My cousin had a baby ring. She still has it. Okay. She's getting it all. Mementos. They were mementos. Okay. Okay, okay. This isn't a therapy podcast. <laughs> Keep your personal problems yeah. to yourself. We're not here to unpack your shit, Josh. There's a lot of it. <laughs> if you want to unpack your shit, wait until you're a ghost. Oh, okay. Uh, all right, cool. <laughs> God, that was mean. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, legally speaking, no. Right. For Absolutely. legal reasons, that was a joke. <laughs> in the late 80s, property taxes in Nyack were, raising, were rising. Owing the house simply was not feasible anymore. And with George sadly passed away, Helen had little attachment to the house beyond the ghostly guests who haunted her halls. So she put one La Vida place on the markets, and this is where the house came to the attention of one Jeffrey Stambrowski of New York City. He was interested in buying the house, and negotiations began with Helen's real estate broker, Ellis Realty. Uh, yeah, Realty. This is where the promise began. Before we get into the brass tacks of this, I just want to clarify, I am not a legal expert, so please be patient as we try to navigate this course game this court case together. Okay, the issue began with one of Helen's caveats with Ellis Reality. She refused to sign the contract unless Stramboski was informed of the ghost's presence within the house. Ellis Reality apparently claimed that they had informed him sometime before he signed the contract. They say that Jeffrey was told of the activity and that he laughed it off, jokingly remarking, quote, I guess we'll have to call the Ghostbusters, end quote. Thus, Helen was willing to sign and the deal was closed. 
According to Samboski, though, he had only heard about the ghosts when he met with Helen in person a week after agreeing to buy the house for $650,000 with a down payment of $32,500 on top of that. He filed to have the contract rescinded. He also did not attend the closing, meaning he was not obligated to buy the house, but that Helen would be keeping the down payment. Originally, the Supreme Court ruled, quote, no remedy by law, effectively dismissing his case by saying the law had no way of rectifying the situation. Shambosky did appeal in the appeal court is the more notorious section of this case. They found that Helen repeatedly claimed that the house was haunted, as evident in his multiple her multiple articles on the subject. Subsequently, she was stopped, meaning that she could not go back on those claims in a legal sense. Shambosky's main argument was that, as a resident of New York City, he could not have expected to know the reputation of a house in a relatively rural village. The court stated that this would normally fall under the pretense of buyer beware, a legal principle that says that it's the buyer's responsibility to know the condition of a house before buying it. Is all making sense so far? Yeah. Okay, we're not getting lost in the sauce? Okay. However, the court would rule that said principle did not apply. Quote, it should be apparent, however, that the most meticulous inspection and the search would not reveal the presence of poltergeists at the premises or unearth the property's ghoulish reputation in the community. Therefore, there is no sound policy to deny plaintiff relief for failing to discover a state of affairs which most prudent purchases would not be expected to even contemplate, end quote. The most famous line from his trial is the one I read at the top of the episode, Quote, as a matter of law, the house is haunted, end quote. It is worth knowing that the, le- that the court legally recognizing that the house is haunted is less an acknowledgement of ghosts existing and more a statement as to the effects or reputation of being haunted has on the objective value of the house. It is also worth noting that this court opinion, full of ghost puns. Like, ghost puns out the wazoo. Uh, some of them are... Uh, Plaintiff hasn't a ghost of a chance as one of my favorites. But ultimately, the court side was Stromboski, and he was given back his down payment. This case has become famously known as the Ghostbusters ruling, due to the justice even referring to the film by name. Why not as all-encompassing as may assume, it did set a precedent that when it came to the sale of stigmatized houses. Yes, that also includes haunted houses. The general policy is that if a buyer asks if a house is haunted, the seller is obligated to tell them. Or at least, that's the best I can get to understand it from HowStuffWorks.org. If I get it wrong, please don't yell at me, lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do y'all think of that? Legally recognized ghosts? Um, any opinions you want to share on this court case? I know it got down in technicalities for a hot minute. I don't like the ruling in his favor, just because it was publicized. Uh-huh. If I want to buy something, I'm going to do my research. Uh-huh. Like, I know, granted, they don't have, you know, the internet like the stuff like we have today. But, you know, you had access to newspaper articles and stuff like that. You can go to your local library and get newspaper articles. Did he not just visit the town he was moving to or at least purchasing this property in? If I'm going to... So I was looking at... That's like a $1.5 million now. If I'm going to spend that much on a house, I'm going to go there first. Um, so... Maybe I missed it, but what happens 
like when you were talking, I, I think I missed this detail, but what happened to make him pull back out of the house? They told him it was haunted and he was like, ooh, the value is going to go down if it's haunted. So I'm going to like pull out this deal. I feel like nowadays that would, I, I know so many people who would be like, well, well then here. It is, <laughs> it is bullshit that they sided with him in the ruling because he was, he was told beforehand that it was haunted and he laughed at it and made a joke of it. But so. that's what the realtor claimed. But he claims he didn't hear about the ghost until he already signed the contract and met with Helen in person. Helen, okay, if I'm I'm going to pass blame on one person, it would probably be the realtor. Because Helen, if she was trying to hide from him, wouldn't have told him about the ghost at all. And she even had in her contract, she wanted him informed about it. So it feels like it's the realtor that kind of... There was a fault in the yeah, whole situation. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, if, if real estate sales worked the way back then that they do now, then of course they'd have, they'd have a nice big chunk of commission off of that home. That's exactly yeah. what I was thinking. So they wouldn't want the sale to fall through, you know? Yeah. Please don't sue us. Ella's realty. <laughs> Please. I have nothing worth taking. I just feel like what kills me is most people I know would find, had even finding out about this place being haunted would be like, yes, let's move in. I know. I know. Hi. Hi. <laughs> and they're all in this room. <laughs> Helen did eventually find other buyers, though. One of the people interested in the house was George John Krasig, a.k.a. the Amazing Kreskin, a mentalist featured in multiple TV shows. Now, Kreskin claims he simply uses suggestion in psychology but has no particular psychic ability. In 1991, Helen did sell a house and finally moved to Florida. We don't know who she sold it to. I just wanted to list that as an interesting little buyer. However, that is not the end of the ghost story. You see, I managed to find a photography website owned by Mark Karbanoff, Cynthia's husband, where he posted a few updates about the haunting. According to him, two paranormal investigators reached out to Helen in 1993. They were Glenn Johnson and Bill Morell. Portland-based ghost hunters who claimed to have made contact with spirits from Nyack. They wanted Helen to accompany them for a seance to commune with the ghosts and maybe get some answers. At the time, Cynthia and Mark lived in Oregon, so Helen decided to visit and met up with a pair of intrepid investigators. Which, I'm assuming they didn't visit the house. So, did they contact the ghosts all the way from Portland? How do ghosts, do ghosts travel? Ghost phone. Ghost phone? Long distance, yes, but those people weren't around when phones were a thing. <laughs> Did you know the ghost phone is actually kind of a thing? Thomas Edison tried to make a telephone specifically for speaking with the dead. I've heard about that. Yeah. Dude was, dude was weird. Go Tesla. <laughs> Together, the group managed to contact the spirits, who identified themselves as Sir George and Margaret. The spirits expressed that they missed the Ackleys, and that the new owners were far from accommodating, often ignoring the hauntings outright instead of attempting to reach out. According to the witnesses, the spirits did provide historical information that was backed up by established records. In a second session, the ghosts even admit that they were moving on and would soon be leaving the mortal plane. With a tearful goodbye, Spirits departed into the beyond. Johnson and Merrill did write a book about their investigation called Sir George the Ghost of Nyack, which I will freely admit I did not read. Because mm -hmm. paperbacks off Amazon were 60 bucks, and I ain't got the fucking money for that. 
Now, I do want to note that I did reach out to the Nyack Historical Society and asked if they had any documents that could f confirm the existence of a Sir George who lived in Nyack, but they said they couldn't find anything. Today, One La Vida Place is owned by American rapper, all the names I looked up pronunciation for, and it wasn't this one, Maticia. At least that's according to an article by The Star from 2020. The article also has a quote from the house's current realtor, one Nancy Blaker Weber saying, quote, I have not nor have I heard of subsequent owners experiencing anything unusual. To me, the house feels warm and welcoming and is a beloved house from all the owners who live there, end quote. And with that, the story of the Ackley haunting draws to a close. A shorter story than I usually bring, but I've been working super hard on the season finale, so I thought I could take a break with a simple ghost story with an interesting legal twist. But we're left with some dangling questions. Was the haunting real? Did the ghost truly leave the material world? Was it all overactive imaginations, or dare I say, possibly even a story as conjured up as the spirits within? That brings us to the ultimate question we debate at the end of every episode. Do you believe? Yeah or nay, do you believe in the Ackley House haunting? Like with the facts that were presented and multiple people, you know, prior to them moving in, having the stories of, you know, this this house is haunted and stuff like that, and her experiences, I believe yes, it's real. And the fact that the ghost just like left, if someone was a dick to you, wouldn't you leave too? <laughs> <laughs> so we got one yes, uh, anyone else? I think yes. I I'm, I'm with him. But were they able to move on the whole time? I guess. I mean, and they I were just staying because the Ackleys were accommodating. It seems so. Yeah. That they just stayed because they're chill, or maybe they that got a taste of friendship, and then when they didn't have that anymore, they're like, ugh. Now this this story, um, in 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 my head, it's peaking like um, manifestation. So once an entity is discovered and talked about and talked about again, it seems to garner more power through those interactions, through having a name and uh, act, you know, for lack of a better term, a voice again. Um, so the fact that the spirits were being talked about before the Ackleys had moved in, and then the Ackleys were talking about them and treating them so kindly. So they were getting these very powerful paranormal experiences, such as the apparitions and the bed shaking. And I, I do believe it all has to do with, with the energy that's that's being put into the situation. And if the, if the owners had moved in and the spirits were ready to move on and those owners were not putting any energy into manifesting anything for the spirits anymore, then it makes sense that they would go because they're essentially losing their life force. Okay, so... Good job, everybody. Yeah, sure. I agree. So it's all <laughs> yeses? Yeah. yeah. All the way around. I'm... Mm. Oh, you don't think so. Oh. This is going to be very weird for listeners because usually I'm eager to jump on this stuff, but don't crucify me for this. I have a harder time being sold on hauntings, uh, especially because most of what we know only comes from Helen's article. An article she wrote, like, we don't know if the plumber actually saw them or the kids actually saw anything. That's just what Helen told us. And the reputation the house supposedly had was after Helen already wrote articles about it and got it on a walking tour. But didn't her daughter's husband 
corroborate some of the activity? Yes, but that's only people of an immediate family. People who might, you know, go along with something if this is a hoax or possibly just a misinterpretation. Like, how many times they seen silhouettes that could just be sleep paralysis or something like that. Yeah. I, I don't like calling people hoaxers, but I have to be open to that, you know? Uh, well, I have to be wary. You know, and I, I understand that. And I I certainly understand, you know, people people setting up the hoaxes to get the glory, but it doesn't really seem like Helen wasn't reaching out to like large media outlets. Like she did Reader's Digest and she did a couple of news publications. And, like that's not really hitting like a wide media. So I don't really think she was creating the story for fame and possibly maybe in her head, she felt like there was a presence in the house and it had just snowballed into this thing where it all goes back to, again, manifestation, the energies around you, the things that you're experiencing. I guess, I just, eh. I, the one thing that makes me think she isn't lying beyond me just liking to give people the benefit of the doubt is that she had it in her contract that someone trying to buy the house had to be told. So at the very least, I think she believes. She had a very strong belief. She absolutely 100% believes. Yeah. And it it does go back to what Katie's saying about manifestation. Even if there wasn't necessarily something there, she could have drawn from things that were... The only part of the story that I don't believe are is the ghost hunters from Oregon or Portland. <laughs> it seems to me like with like, you know, you reaching out to the historical society and then not finding a name or something like that. It seems like they're trying to get their 15 minutes of fame. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And like you pointed out earlier, you know, contacting a spirit from across the country. Like don't most places or most, you know, contacts start with some source of something. You know, so what could they have used to and target? If if the if the spirits from Nyack were really trying to reach Helen, why wouldn't they have gone to a closer source? I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Why the hell did they go to Portland? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, unless there's something about you know their life that took place in Port- Portland, which we don't know. Other than the fact that her was it her daughter and and yeah they lived in Oregon at the time. How close to Portland? Were they in Portland? Uh, I it didn't say. Okay. I just... I don't know. That still to me seems like too small of a... I feel like... I feel like paranormal investigators... I, I don't believe that they were bad paranormal investigators. I believe that because the daughter and the son-in-law lived in Oregon and there was, you know, such such the opportunity for them to come across this story and then dig into just dig into a story you know we're all we're all hungry for it like we're all here for the same reason we're exploring we're investigating we're trying to figure this stuff out Harmon. i appreciate the fact that you have um the other side of the spectrum of view of the, the more of the skeptic stuff i'm i'm easier to believe because or not easier to believe i'm sorry i'm e- it is easier for me to believe in hauntings because I have done investigations. I have stories upon stories upon stories of things that we cannot explain, things that we could not recreate, personal experiences of mine that I have had that I know my mind wasn't playing tricks on me. Jake's mind is going to fucking explode when you hear someone call me a skeptic. (laughs) That's my my co-host. And He's the designated skeptic of the group. Oh, okay. I'm so, sorry. What's his name, Jake? Uh, he, JP. JP. 
I'm sorry, JP. In, in in my world and here in this little bubble that we have that we're doing this podcast, Harmon happens to be the skeptic. Harmon's the asshole. <laughs> um, and that's also coming from like us three here about more is we want to try to disprove everything that we find. It's it's just good investigation technique. Like you you really do. You have to debunk. You have to go back right. and say, is there any other explanation for this? Because if there is, then you you know. Yeah, I, I guess the problem for me is I, even if there's one shred of physical evidence, I can hook onto something. Right. But hauntings don't do that. Wanna... So it's hard for me to buy in because it's like, they could be lying. Sorry to cut you off there. Oh, no, but that that's it exactly with this. There's no physical evidence. They don't have any photos. They don't have any video. Like, even modern things that we're used to seeing when we hear about hauntings because we watch videos and all kinds of haunting shows you know they always catch something usually so to not have any of that to corroborate this story in particular makes it harder to believe but at the same time they weren't using those same techniques to investigate back yeah. then either spirit investigations like you really do have to look at the source your material is coming from you really do have to make sure that who you're getting material from is credible and they're not embellishing and they're not you know, upselling the story for the shock factor. Yeah, and I guess on the flip side, uh, you could argue it's the 60s and the 80s. This was before ghost shows really became popular, so yeah. a lot of people won't have that idea mm-hmm. in their head to be like, we should set up a camera or something. Right. It's just, I have to have that little grain of doubt because even if there's no one trying to trick them, even if like the two investigators are 100% honest and aren't trying any tomfoolery, a room full of people who buy into something can make themselves believe whatever they want. That's how you get a cult. Right, right. That's, <laughs> that's, that is exactly the ingredients for that kind of stuff. And, you know, I, I find it interesting that in this story in particular, like, I just keep going back to the, the pleasantries, the niceties that happened during, like, the, the friendly interaction that they had during these things. Because when you, when you read about you know, what happened in Amityville, it's all very, you know, everybody likes to put that demonic sticker on it and call it that. And it's very negative experiences with hauntings. Like they're all stuck with that, that absolute, just that stigma that is there forever. Speaking of hoaxes, you brought up the Warrens. I got beef with the Warrens. I understand. I understand 100%. Stop making Conjuring movies. <laughs> Annabelle goes to White Castle. How many movies does that fucking doll need? I would watch that. You would. 100%. I agree with what Katie said. If her initial interaction would have been different, instead of more accepting, like, it's such a lovely view, what if she went, like, you know, oh, fuck this shit, you know, get the hell out, <laughs> you know, would her experience have been different? You've been part of the paranormal investigation scene for a lot longer than we have. So what is your opinion on that? I'm sorry to like skip questions and stuff, but I'm just kind of curious about that. Well, I mean, again, it goes it goes back to it goes back to my like the core, the foundation of everything I believe is that things are what you make them. The energy that you put out is the energy that you get back. So in investigations, if you are putting out welcoming, friendly buddy vibes, then that's what you're going to get. But if you walk into a place and you're scared and you're frightened and you're freaked out, then immediately 
the stuff that you're getting is going to amplify that. It's going to increase your, your, you know, your shock. On the flip side, at least at first, it feels like the ghosts were just as much feeling them out as they were feeling out of the ghosts. Like mm-hmm. they mentioned the tension, the fact the first time he physically appeared, she felt like she was being watched and she's on top of a ladder. That's a pretty vulnerable position if that yeah. ghost just wanted to be like, that was the scariest part of the story for me, being up on top of an eight foot ladder because I didn't drop two eyes. <laughs> you know, go, it, it, the ghost show they can move stuff. Swatted to the side yeah. until she put out that little olive branch, and they're like, "Okay, we're cool now." Now, see, when you started into that, I was I was half expecting you to say something like, "And then the, she fell off the ladder." The, the the can of paint spilled on the floor because the ghosts don't like fucking gray. <laughs> <laughs> this is a summer color. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm gonna say I am open to the possibility. The Akeley house really is haunted. But as of now, we're just going off of witness testimonies. And for me, that's not enough to go all the way into the yes. So for me, it's going to be a strong, definite, eh, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you all for joining me for this episode of The Cryptic Code. Uh, We haven't been able to record for a while, so this really helps. Uh, We get you on the not recording part. (laughs) Yeah. For real. (laughs) Uh, you'll have podcasts. You want to plug that while you're here? Yes. Can you get the title right? Yeah, I think I can, I think I can do this. <laughs> you got to focus your power. Uh, Mount Research Society has its own podcast called Creature, Creatures, Crypts, and Creeps. Creatures. <laughs> I always say creatures. I have to say it. It's Creatures, Crypts, and Creeps. Um, you can find us on Spotify, um, our Facebook. Literally anywhere you can listen to a podcast. <laughs> I do not have a podcast, but I have a very lovely shop called Appalachian Oddities located in Weston, West Virginia. We are open uh, Tuesday through Sunday from 11 to 7. You guys can stop in. All are welcome. Wow. Chill on my podcast. Wow. I'm joking. I'm joking. I was going to ask if you wanted to do a ad read. You can edit it out if you like, sir. <laughs> Not even cut it out. Is this going to be replaced with 10 minutes of silence? <laughs> but yeah, come on down to Appalachian Oddies. Uh, you just opened an escape room, right? Yeah, we opened it October 1. We've had a couple of people come through that were very successful. Michael here is our reigning champion. Yes. Him and his friends made it through in a whopping 48 minutes. So That's only because Josh and Annie haven't gotten a chance to do the escape room yet. So. <laughs> uh, I was just in the neighborhood. Figured I would uh, drop by and interview with you all. So, yeah, uh, thank you all again for joining me and uh, bring your ghostly expertise to everything. Check them out if you get the chance. They're really cool people. And you can buy some pretty cool stuff at the shop, too. And until next time, stay safe and stay spooky out there.